This is episode 159. Last week, I published a blog titled Are Polar Bears Going Extinct or Are They Doing Better Than Ever? And by the way, those of you who are subscribed to my newsletter uh, read that blog, that article, probably two months ago. That's one of the benefits of being subscribed to my newsletter. You have access, you have early access uh, to a lot of materials and in some cases, exclusive access to materials that are not published anywhere else. But anyway, I digressed. Um, I wrote that blog because I was trying to find an answer to that question. Because recently, again, um, the discussion about like, oh, there's like more polar bears than ever before raised its head. And I was genuinely uh, trying to find the answer to that question. So I published that blog and earlier in the newsletter as well, and it was met with a lot of interest. So to meet that interest, today our guest is Professor Andrew Durocher from the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Alberta, who specializes in ecology, conservation, and management of large Arctic mammals, with particular focus on polar bears, which he studied for 40 years. Usually during those introductions, I'm giving you a rundown of topics we're going to discuss uh, in the episode. But today, I'm just going to say that we are going to answer all your questions about polar bears, including those you didn't know you had. I'm sure you will enjoy this episode. And if you want to read the blog that I mentioned or subscribe to my newsletter, the links are in the description of this show. So go in there, uh, read the blog, subscribe to the newsletter. And now, enjoy the show. Andrew, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's great being here with you. I'm so happy that you, we, you found the time to talk about polar bears. People who listen to this podcast, most of you uh, know the concept of indicator species, right? The species that are in the, in the environment, their, their health and how their population are doing indicates how the entire ecosystem works and whether it's healthy or not. And uh, it's not mine. One of the listeners uh, said something like, uh, polar bears are indicator species to indicate all the climate change deniers. So I found that was very funny. So not that something I want to do on this podcast, but a question, is it even possible to talk about polar bears and not talk about climate change? Well, I, I mean, I've studied polar bears for almost 40 years now. And when I started in this business, climate change was kind of this distant sort of vague scenario that was really the domain of climatologists and sea ice specialists. I mean, it wasn't something that biologists talked about at all. Uh, it wasn't until the early 1990s that we started to see some changes in polar bear populations that we couldn't explain that um, weren't likely the result of hunting, which, of course, polar bears are hunted in much of their range. Um, and so we were concerned about what these changes were. Maybe it was just natural fluctuations in the system. But then we started to get about that time enough data from satellite imagery of the Arctic and of sea ice 
that we could take our population ecology data and put it together with the changing environment that the bears were living in. And we got some really interesting insights. And we could see that there was these relationships between how long the sea ice was present and the body condition of the bears. And so that was the sort of the, the foundation of our concerns about climate change and polar bears. But that really didn't shift into high gear until the early 2000s. When there was this accumulating evidence across the Arctic, more and more, that polar bears were in trouble. Uh, and that's basically, it's the same threat that a lot of species face, and it's just a habitat loss issue. Um, it's nothing more than the Arctic is warming, and it's warming three times faster than mid-latitude areas. And that just means that sea ice forms later, melt sooner. And at some point, we cross this threshold at which polar bears just can't survive in an area. And that's the simple crux of it. Um, personally, I, I mean, polar bears are just such a fascinating species that um, I think their ecology is really amazing. And the things they do are just really cool. So you can sort of be, you know, focused on climate change. And a lot of our research is, but there's still just the natural history of the animals that is just so amazing. Uh, excellent. Uh, I would love to hear about that uh, as well. So, but just to stay for a, for a second in a, in a uh, thread of the climate change, can you tell us what are the, the, the major threats? Because I, as I understand, there is a number of prongs to the, to the like umbrella, you know, uh, sea ice loss, habitat loss, but there are like a specific things that are related to the um, sea ice loss that are affecting polar bears. Can you tell us what are they? Yeah, I think one of the first things that people need to, to consider is that across the Arctic, uh, across the five nations that have polar bears under their jurisdiction, we've got 19 different populations or subpopulations of polar bears. And these are fairly discrete units of bears. And so when we talk about the effects of climate change on polar bears, it's not a one size fits all. Um, there are different rates of change in each of these different 19 populations. And those, those changes are occurring both in the sea ice, the bear's habitat, and in basically the population biology of the bears. So what we've got is all these different events playing out at different rates. The story's about the same in each of them. And when what we see first in, in terms of the impacts on bears is a change in the sea ice. That it's usually that it melts sooner and freezes later. Um, and once we start to see that, shortly thereafter, typically we start to see a change in the body condition of bears. They're just not as fat as they used to be. Then eventually we start to see changes in the survival rates. And usually that's the weakest animals in the population, the young animals and the very old. And then following that, we start to see a decline in reproductive rates. And that just means that fewer females are successful at rearing their cubs to weaning. And eventually, when you put those changes together, if you monitor long enough and you have good enough data, you'll find that the population abundance has declined. And right now we have three populations with very good evidence of, of abundance decline. But at the same time, we've got populations that are doing quite well, that the ice is stable, the bears aren't showing much effect. Um, and we've got other a few populations that are still increasing in abundance uh, from perhaps, perhaps uh, over-harvest that occurred historically over the last 20 or 30 years. So 
we've got this whole sort of hodgepodge of, of indices and metrics that we monitor. Um, and a lot of what we see also depends on the ecosystem. So if you go to Alaska in the United States, um, we've got one population, the Southern Beaufort Sea, where the abundance of those bears is down by up to perhaps 50%. But right next door to it, there's a population shared with Russia in the Chukchi Sea that is really stable. It doesn't seem to be affected. We can see changes in sea ice, but the bears aren't responding to those changes yet. And the fundamental difference between those two areas is the size of the continental shelf. So this is water that's usually less than 200 meters deep. Um, and in the Beaufort Sea area, that's a really narrow band of habitat that the bears use. Um, in the Chukchi Sea, it's a huge area. It, it spans this massive area between Alaska and Russia. And so changes in sea ice there don't have as much impact as they do in the Beaufort Sea. So the bears aren't being affected. So even close proximity is not necessarily a good indicator of what's happening in an area. So it's a complicated story. Um, I, I think one of the problems is the climate change deniers try to simplify it. And, you know, we're not running around with our hair on fire like polar bears are going extinct anytime soon. And our best estimates is we're going to have polar bears out to the end of this century because it's still going to get cold in the Arctic. Um, we may lose many of the populations in the southern areas over the coming decades, but we're still going to have polar bears in the high Arctic. And this is, like you, you mentioned this thing, this is being hijacked often by uh, climate change deniers, or, or you know, I, I actually don't like this term, but this is, this is what it is. Um, and 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 one of the arguments is that oh you know this is being concealed like polar bears are thriving because um, people will that will people will refrain from the or will delay action on on the climate and is is that an element uh, you know in the back of your head when you're saying like even here on this podcast right you know it's it's not like a it's like critically endangered it's, it's a, is there a, element in your head that is like, ah, maybe I'm not going to say that? You know, I I basically play with open cards. I mean, I'm a scientist. I'm not, you know, oddly, I've spent most of my life studying polar bears, but I'm not really emotionally attached to them as a species. It's what I study. So I look at numbers and data and, you know, we use statistics and models to try to understand their ecology and how sea ice is going to affect them. Um, and, and basically it, it's, it, it's pretty simple story. I can go into a grade one class and explain about warming and ice and habitat and polar bears and they get it. Um, but it's, you know, it's uh, a really inconvenient story for the climate change deniers in the context that, um, it is such a simple thing for people to understand, you know, people get ice and temperature that's an easy relationship to understand. And because we're not even saying what's going to happen to sea ice as a habitat, that's coming from a totally different group. That's the sea ice scientists. And I've worked with a lot of them over the... These, these are hardcore mathematicians that look at their data rigorously and use incredibly complicated models to try to understand what's happened in the past to predict what will happen in the future. No, it's always a prediction. Um but we can see also from the empirical record that sea ice is declining at very rapid rates in some parts of the Arctic. 
Um, the Norwegian Arctic, where I worked for seven years, my old study area there from the 1990s and early 2000s actually doesn't exist anymore. I couldn't actually study polar bears there. So, you know, when I first started looking at climate change as an issue in 1993, I looked at it as something that was really far away, that this was something for future generations of biologists that, that would never occur in my lifetime. And I think the biggest shock to me is just how fast things have changed. And I think more and more, I, I think that people understand the effects of climate change much more. Um, and it's interesting because even my colleagues in the polar bear world they were quite skeptical early on because they weren't seeing any changes in their research populations. And it wasn't until they started to see the changes locally that they understood the issues more fully and sort of, yeah, okay, now we can see it. And I think that humans as a whole, I mean, we only have to look at the summer we're living through uh, in Europe and North America, in Asia, understand that this is a very different era uh, and a lot of the changes that we're seeing are not normal anymore. Yeah, for sure. Listen, you mentioned earlier on that the, the ice uh, freezes later and then uh, melts also earlier and the bears are not as fat as like, why is it because they don't have enough time uh, to like you know, like bears live the whole year. So what is stopping them to getting fat? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's part of their life history strategy. And one of the things to point out is polar bears are really good at going long periods of time without eating. So in Western Hudson Bay in Canada, one of the populations I'm currently working in, we have pregnant female polar bears that uh, came off the sea ice last month and they won't eat anything for eight months. And during that period of time, uh, they're going to use about one kilogram of body weight per day that they're not feeding. Uh, but they're also going to give birth to cubs, usually about two. Um, and then they're going to nurse them from basically being about 800 grams up to about 10 kilograms, then head back out onto the sea ice in the springtime. And the whole dynamics of, of a polar bear year is that they go long periods of time without eating. And then they usually um, have this boom feeding period in the springtime. And that's when their two major prey item, ring seals, which are up to about 70 kilograms in adult size, and bearded seals, which can be over 400 kilos in body mass, that's when they're going to give birth to their pups. And it's also their mating season for the uh, seals. And during that window of time, which starts in about March and continues to about June, that's the prime feeding period for polar bears. And so one of the ways to, is that, uh, to think about a polar bear is they're like a fat vacuum. They go around the Arctic, they kill these seals, and then they basically suck that blubber layer off of them and chain take it and almost unmodified put it into their own fat cells. And so this is done with a hugely effective uh, system. So if we had a 500 kilogram adult male polar bear, which would be a big one, but not huge, a 500 kilogram bear could easily consume 100 kilograms of fat in a single meal. Out of that 100 kilograms of fat, over 90 kilos of it will go directly into their own fat cells. 
So that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, you, you vacuum your floor, all that dust goes into a bag. Well, for a polar bear, it just goes into their fat cells and they just balloon. They don't get more of them. They just have a constant number, but they just fill up and expand. So that filling up period is limited by the duration of the sea ice and the conditions of the sea ice. So if that period of time is shortened, it's just cutting into the feeding period that the bears have. And so they bears will keep fattening right through the early summer periods. As long as there's ice and they can still catch seals, they'll keep fattening up. Um, but once they uh, the ice breaks up too much, they either move on land or they move farther north to really thick ice. But they're in areas that are unproductive. They can't catch seals. Um, and once that happens, now they're bleeding down that fat reserve that they've put down. And so it's simply a matter of numbers. If the ice-free period is 150 days, no problem. Most polar bears will be fine. They have enough fat on them from that spring feeding period to go 150 days. Another 30 days, 180 days, um, and some individuals are going to have trouble. And who are those individuals? It's going to be mothers with small cubs um, because they're nursing those cubs. They nurse them for two and a half years. Um, they're nursing those cubs and... Um, also young animals that are just recently weaned that are not as effective hunters and they're really old animals. Those are the ones that are going to have trouble at around 180 days, get out around 200 plus days and almost an exponential number of animals in the population will start to get in trouble. Now the bears that are average condition and better, they'll be okay, but it's those bears that are less than average condition that we'll start, to, we'll start to see higher mortality rates. So it's a pretty simple story. It's, it's just a energy in, energy out. Uh, and for polar bears, all that energy comes in a really short window. Um, and it's how long that energy out period is without refilling the tank that really matters for them. Mm. You, you say that the animals that are with a good condition, but good body condition will be better, but their feeding period is also uh, shortening. So I'm just wondering whether it's like their body condition will be declining over the year. So, you know, it's in a good condition and next year is going to be a little bit less good condition. Have you seen like this, this decline over the years? Yeah. You know, polar bears are a lot like humans. The older you get, the fatter you get is kind of the typical pattern. Um, and actually it's a good thing for polar bears when, you know, a young female starts out her first reproductive attempt. Um, those are usually like sort of trial and error. Very few of those cubs survive. But if they don't live, then she'll be a little fatter next year and a little fatter the year after. And so gradually these bears get in better and better condition. They're better hunters. They're better mothers. They're more effective. Um, and basically they just, they hit their sort of peak condition in about their mid-teens. Um, and about that age, that's when most of them have their most successful uh, years reproducing. It's also the years for adult males when they do most of their reproducing as well. They're the biggest, best condition they're in, in about 15, 16 years of age. Um, and then they start to decline in condition because for males, they put so much effort into trying to mate that their body condition actually deteriorates over time. So once they're past their prime, they, you know, you really get these old sort of raggedy looking males that um, they still try to reproduce, but the big males beat them up and run them off. Um, so it's, it, it is sort of, there's a lot of these long-term dynamics that occur. 
And one of the challenges in the Arctic is it's always a noisy environment, and it always has been. Good years, bad years for sea ice, good years for seals. I mean, good conditions for polar bears, bad years. So all this sort of dynamics has been going on. The problem we're getting now is that we've got that same sort of dynamic going on, but it's on a downward slope in terms of how much ice there is. So it's noisy, um, and but it's good years, bad years on a downward trajectory. And our concern longer term is that uh, if you got two or three really bad years in a row, that could really knock a population quite quickly in a downward state. Um, because I, I, the way I put it, it takes about four years of good conditions or at least average conditions to get a cub from birth uh, all the way into being an independent subadult animal. Understand. And when you say noisy environment, you mean like a noise signal noise, like in terms of data, exactly. data noise, not it, like for people who are wondering, it's just we're talking about the data and the signal to, it's a signal to noise ratio, I guess. It's a exactly, term. exactly. It's how much ice and when did it form and, and how much is it moving? What, it, what do storms do this year versus next year? Do you get some unusual events? Um, we had some really weird weather in parts of the Arctic this past year, just incredibly warm conditions um, that you just wouldn't expect to see. Um, and, and the concern is like, okay, one or two days of, you know, 30 degrees plus in the Arctic isn't that weird. Um, but if you get long spells, then that starts to heat up the ocean. And that means that freeze up can be delayed. So not only does it make the melt happen sooner, but if the oceans are accumulating a lot of heat, then, you know, it just takes longer to cool it down before you'll get the ice back. So, um, but these sorts of dynamics have been going on forever. You know, seals have good years, bad years, and all that sort of noise is in the system. And a lot of it um, is, is sort of just natural, but we have this unnatural signal that's going on as well. And uh, you said that the, that the males are putting so much energy into mating. So is it like they're fighting with each other? What's uh, what's the uh, character of that energy well, expenditure? It's, yeah, it's 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 interesting because we do a lot of work out on the sea ice tracking bears. And once you get onto a male, uh, adult male in the breeding season, um, it's almost like they're on a compass bearing and they're just doing like a transect. They just go on a straight line. And as soon as they hit, hit a set of tracks, They'll turn and they'll follow those tracks for a little bit, and they're they're checking the smell. Is this a female? Is it another male? Um, is that female? Is she perhaps in breeding condition? So if it's a female in breeding condition, we'll just stay on those tracks until they catch up to her. If they do, if there's another male there, and depending on the size of the male and how close they are in sort of competitive stature. Um, if there's a difference, the fights are over in, in seconds. Like one bear looks at the other one and says, okay, not having a bar fight with you. I'm out of here. Um, she's yours. Uh, if they're equally matched, uh, then we're talking massive, massive amounts of blood, potential for broken bones. I've seen bears that have lost eyes. Uh, broken canine teeth are really common. Uh, they stand up and they they hit their heads together and they smash their teeth. And these you know these canines are are thicker than your thumb, so they're massively strong structures. But they have so much force. I mean, when we look at these bears, sometimes you just wonder how they manage to survive some of these fights. 
Um, they're not common. Um, but of course, you know, these bears may only have sex a few times in their life. So the evolutionary pressure on them to get access to a breeding female is pretty intense. Wow. I didn't realize that. That's, that's very interesting. Andrew, one of the things that I read about uh, impacts of the climate change is that bear, polar bears hunting tactic is not suitable to catching seals in, on land or, or on open water. And they're mainly hunting on the ice and, and water interface. Could you please explain their hunting tactic? Because you would imagine, you know, from the layperson perspective, you know, oh, they, when the seal is on the land, doesn't have a way, where to go, so it's easier to catch. So, but, but that's not the case. Can you explain that why? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, and I think a lot of the reason people think about seals and land is because where a lot of people live at lower latitudes, we're used to things like harbor seals or maybe gray seals. Um, and those would be the ones that you see on beaches. Uh, when you get to the Arctic, you won't find seals on land. Uh, number one is there's just way too many predators on land. We've also got grizzly bears or brown bears in these areas and wolves and wolverines and other big things that would kill them. So the Arctic seals, mainly the ring seals and the bearded seals, they're what we call pelagic species. They're out in the oceans. They don't come to shore. Uh, very, very rarely would you ever find a ring seal on land. Uh, and same with bearded seals. It's just not where they live. So most of the year uh, when there's sea ice, they're out in the open oceans on sea ice, and that is their primary habitat. So they use the sea ice for giving birth to their young. Um, they also use it for nursing their young, and they use it for molting out their fur. So they have to have that sea ice platform. But when it melts, um, they just stay out in the open ocean. So they're, they're actually in a place, once the, once the ice is gone, the bears can't catch them because they really can't swim after them. They, they're not effective open water predators. Um, so, but the way polar bears normally catch seals in the springtime and through the winter is, uh, well, there's lots of different methods. One of them is what we call a still hunt. And that is like the seals and mainly the ring seals need access to the air. So they maintain a hole uh, in the sea ice and they use their, their claws on their flippers to scratch these holes open. And the, basically the bears walk around, do a survey, looking to find out where there's fresh scent at one of these holes. And then they'll either stand there or lie there for hours on end, just waiting for that seal to come up and get a breath. Uh, and when they do, they'll dive in with their heads and try to grab the seal and then pull it out. And then it's mealtime. So that's one way of doing it. Uh, the other thing they do is, is the bears will walk along the edges of cracks where the seals are not maintaining holes, but coming up near these cracks to get a breath. Um, and then if a seal comes up, they'll either dive at them or try to grab them and get a meal. The other way that happens in the springtime is ring seals are, are, kind, are well adapted to um, this Arctic environment. And what they do is they maintain a hole through the ice but to give birth to their pups, the females will actually make a little snow cave, like a lair under the snow around the ice, and she'll give birth to her pups in that lair. And so it, in the springtime when those pups are being born, they're basically like candies for polar bears. There's lots of them, and they're not very easy to get, you know, it's hard for them to get away, so they're easy to, for the bears to catch. 
But now they can't see them. So they have to use their sense of smell to locate where they are. And so you think about the sense of smell, they're putting out a plume of smell and they get in that plume and then they have to narrow it down. And then looking at the ice, where do they think that seal might be? They might be able to hear movement of the pup and then they crash through that snow. Um, they don't have to necessarily crash on top of the pup, but if they can crash on the hole, then they can eventually dig out the pup and get a meal. Uh, those seal pups, by the time they're fattened up, are a pretty good meal package. When they're just born, it's kind of like lunch bag letdown. It, there's not much meat or fat on them. Um, but what they're hoping for are those big, fat, well-nursed up pups. Um, or if they're really lucky, they'll catch the mother in the, in the lair as well at the same time. So then you get a, a two-for-one sort of deal where you get the mother and the pup. So there's those, that's sort of the standard ways of hunting. Uh, once the ice is starting to break up, then the bears will move into what we call aquatic stalks. And this is where they'll, they'll spot a seal, perhaps sitting on a seal flow uh, or an ice flow, and the seal will be sitting there. And then they'll slip into the water and then they'll swim up as close as they can and then try to jump out onto the ice flow and catch the seal before it can get away. Um, it's not quite as effective, very dramatic, but not quite as effective as just waiting patiently at a hole. And, and it is worth mentioning here that um, polar bears are classified as marine mammals, right? That's very interesting. That's right. And that's that's one of the ways, you know, people, I, I always kind of bristle when people say, oh, they're the largest terrestrial carnivore. And I'm kind of going, yeah, well, maybe, but that doesn't really fit very well for an animal that spends most of its life out on the sea ice, out on the oceans. You know, historically, um, I worked in the Beaufort Sea area for years, and we had bears that were actually born out on the sea ice in snow dens. Um, they would live their whole life out there, and they would never come on shore. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, yeah, we're used to looking at natural history videos, you know, and things like where the bears are on shore. Um, but if they had their choice, they would stay on the sea ice all year. Uh, so it's, 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 it's again, terrestrial, no marine. Yes. That's, that's fascinating. And they, they're also quite good, good swimmers. I, I think like you get, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they, their, their forest built in a, in a way that, uh, supports their swimming or I, maybe I got it wrong, but you can, you can. No, they're, they really are incredibly good at swimming. I mean, they can swim long distances. We've had, we had, uh, the longest recorded swim was over 600 kilometers. Um, now that female over that period of time lost about 20% of her body weight. Um, and she also lost her one-year-old cub that was with her. So it wasn't a good thing for her, but she was trying to swim to the sea ice and it was just far farther than probably, um, she expected. And, and one of the problems is again, from a, from a polar bear perspective is if she had tried that swim 20, 30 years ago. She would have only had to probably swim 25 kilometers, but the sea ice that year had pushed very far north, hundreds of kilometers offshore, um, and was probably just unexpected. But once you're halfway through, you can't stop. Uh, polar bears normally can easily swim 50 kilometers or more. It's not a problem. But, you know, <laughs> we talk about swimming, and again, not every bear is created equal for swimming. A big fat bear that's really buoyant, well insulated with a lot of body fat is going to do a lot better than a small cub that is just barely making it. Um, and mothers with small cubs will do whatever they can to avoid taking their cubs into uh, water. Uh, 
especially in the springtime when it's really cold, they avoid it like anything. They'll walk for hundreds of kilometers trying to find a way to cross an area without uh, having to make their cubs swim. They just, they'll, they'll, they'll suffer hypothermia. I'd like to recommend the Hunter Conservationist podcast. It's a show that offers nuanced discussions about wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. This podcast shares similar themes. So if you enjoy my show, I'm confident you'll also appreciate the Hunter Conservationist podcast. You can find it on the same platform you're currently using for listening. In addition, you can visit thehunterconservationist.com or simply click on the link in the show notes. Listen, uh, just maybe to um, slightly close the um, talk, the talking about the climate change and that uh, impact, although that's a bulk of what we're talking about. Polar bears survived like warm periods of climate before. So, how how they done it, and what is different this time? I I appreciate that you said earlier that you're not like you know extremely worried about it. Um, but you are worried and the population is declining. So what's the difference this time with this warm period versus previous warm periods that they survived? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I hear this one a lot. Well, the earth has been warmer in the past. And yes, that's true. Um, but everything that the sea ice scientists tell us about the history of sea ice in the Arctic is that for the whole time that polar bears have existed as a species, which is probably 100 to 500,000 years, we're not really sure, um, there has been sea ice. Somewhere in the Arctic, there has always been sea ice. Yes, there's been periods when the Arctic would have been ice-free in summer. But again, that's not a problem for the bears. Being ice-free in an area like Hudson Bay in Canada is already ice-free in the summer. That's not the problem. It's how long it stays ice-free. And so the problem we've got under sort of uh, the current scenario is this is directional warming with under the current levels of carbon dioxide in the air that we've got. Um, the, the scientists are saying we're never going to see another ice age. We're not going to get back into a cooling period. Uh, the planet has just entered a new phase and we won't see that sort of cooling. So if we get into this directional warming, and of course it, it's predicated on what humans do over the coming decades in terms of our ongoing emission scenarios, um, but if this is the true path we're on, we're just going to keep warming the Arctic and there will be less and less sea ice. It becomes directional. Um, and at some point, the bears will be pushed back into this small refugia we call the last ice area in the high Arctic around the Canadian archipelago and Greenland. And at that point, there might not be a viable population of bears. There just might be too few animals. And so that's when you get into extinction risk issues. It's hard to say. We don't even look at scenarios beyond 2100. Uh, it's just too far away. But on the flip side, we also know that during cold periods, polar bears expanded their range dramatically. We had polar bears coming down as far as Ireland, as far as Denmark, uh, the Alaska panhandle. So during cold periods, the populations expanded. During warm periods, they just contracted. No big deal. But the problem is um, there was always sea ice in some of those areas, and it was probably enough sea ice over a broad enough area to maintain the genetic diversity of polar bears. 
Um, it's, they're not an incredibly genetically diverse species at the best of times. So they probably went through these bottlenecks of abundance in the past. We're not really sure. Um, but can they come back out or are we just going to keep heating the planet and there's no place for them to go to? I mean, I'm kind of a, an optimist. I think we'll figure out the solutions. I think eventually humans will come in balance with the planet. Eventually, then we would get back to cooling periods. And if the sea ice re-expanded, the best case scenario is those polar bears from the high Arctic would then have an ecological space they could move back into over time. But we're talking hundreds or thousands of years and, well, I won't be here to see. Yeah, that's uh, that's the thing, right? We're operating on the time frames and time scales that uh, we can we can try to predict what's going to happen, but we're not going to live for better or worse. So this is, and you you mentioned that this is actually a very good point and nice segue here about these bottlenecks and that they were shrinking. So it's a question like how much they're shrinking. And speaking about the genetics and and DNA, I want to ask you about hybridization with brown bears. Um, is that correct that they're so close genetically to brown bears that they're hybridizing and the hybrids are fertile? And then is this considered a risk to polar bear population in any way? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I was up in the Arctic just like probably 40 kilometers from where that first hybrid bear was shot. It was shot by an American hunter sport hunting for polar bears. And this bear showed up, they shot it. But the um, Inuit uh, guide that was taking the hunter out knew right away what he had. They He had a hybrid bear. Um, he knew what it was. Um, but it was interesting because we were with an Inuk hunter um, staying in his cabin, and they didn't have an Inuktitut word, which is the Inuit language. Uh, they didn't have a word for hybrid, uh, and certainly not a hybrid polar bear, grizzly bear. So it's something new to them. And it was certainly an event that uh, was kind of interesting. We had several hybrids. This is in sort of Western Canada and the Arctic area and the islands. Um, and what we know now is that it turns out that there was one female polar bear who mated with two different male grizzly bears, and she's the source of all those hybrids. So it's, you know, they say love is blind. Well, in the Arctic, that applies to polar bears and grizzly bears. And the, the scenario, as near as we can figure out, one of a couple of things happened. Um, uh, we have a healthy population of barren ground grizzly bears in that area. And when an area fills up with grizzly bears, the young males disperse. That's pretty typical mammalian pattern. And the males disperse any direction. And some of them dispersed out across the sea ice from the mainland up into the Arctic islands. And they just kept on going. And eventually they ended up in polar bear habitat. And there's some really big fjords up in those big deep bays, which the polar bears hunt seals in. And the grizzly bears would have come out of their dens in the springtime. And the big males, well, they're looking for love at that time of year. Um, but there's no female grizzly bears around, right? That The females tend not to disperse as quickly as the males. So they were looking for love in all the wrong places. Um, but boy... That, that polar bear seems to work in that context just fine. She smells right. She's a little bit blonder than I might be thinking. But, you know, like I say, love is blind. And that's where the hybrids came from. Um, and so it, we've not seen it other places. 
But it's interesting, you know, uh, I've done a fair bit of work on grizzly bears over the years in various parts of uh, the Arctic as well. Uh, I'm not worried about grizzly bears and climate change. This is a species that is eminently well adapted to a diversity of habitats. You know, historically, we had them in Morocco. Uh, we had them in Mexico, California, all the way up to the Arctic Ocean. We still have them in the Gobi Desert. I mean, this is an animal that's adapted to a variety of habitats. With warming, um, the populations in the Arctic are probably doing a bit better. That's probably why we're seeing this expansion of grizzly bears in the Arctic. And that does put them in closer proximity to polar bears. So are we going to see more hybrids? It's quite possible. Um, grizzly bear mating periods a little bit later than polar bears, but not by very much. Um, the big thing that separated them is that Grizzly bears are usually on land. Polar bears are usually out on the ice. But if the bears are being pushed into smaller areas, the potential for more hybrids is certainly out there. Um, and we are seeing grizzly bears in places where we haven't seen them in recorded history. So it's um, what the threat to polar bears is, is really hard to say. I mean, polar bears have a small gene pool. It would be easy for brown bears or grizzly bears in parts of the Arctic I say brown bears, grizzly bears, same thing. They're the same species. Um, it would be easy for them to flood the polar bear uh, genetics. Uh, grizzly bears are hugely diverse as a species, uh, massive amounts of genetic variation over their range. Um, they could easily absorb polar bear genetic material and, and you wouldn't even notice it. And we have had some second generation hybrids where the cubs are one quarter polar bear, three quarter grizzly bear. And unless you did the genetics on them, you would never know that they weren't grizzly bears. They just go back to looking like little brown fuzzballs, uh, grizzly bear type claws. Um, so it's, it's hard to know. I, I think the big question is going to be uh, how fast do grizzly bears expand uh, and how quickly do polar bears retract in terms of their range. Um, that will be really the dynamic. But it's always going to be one of those events that just occurs at that fringe of the range of the both species. What's your what's your personal view on this from the perspective of, you know, it's it's to the extent natural process. So do you, is, is a part of you thinks that we should prevent those scenarios to, to you know, not um, spoil, in air quotes, gene pool of polar bears or... Is your view is like, no, this is like a natural process, how bears and mammals work. And I'm asking this question because uh, before this episode, a few, a few episodes earlier, uh, I was talking with a scientist about the red wolves, right? And it was like a similar situation where like, actually those, those red wolves are mixing with coyotes and with wolves. And this is what canids always did. And why on earth would we try to stop it? So I'm curious your view on on this situation of polar bears and brown bears. Yeah, I'm I'm very much kind of a hands off uh, at that level. That's that's a natural process, and as you mentioned, wolves and coyotes have hybridized for a long time. Uh, bobcats and lynx hybridized in North America. Um, hybrids are normal. Uh, it's a normal thing. We've actually had uh, hybrids between beluga whales and narwhals. Which, which are not even in the same genus, so genus and species. So they're different species and different genus. 
So that's really strange. So hybrids are normal. Um, and whether or not this is a normal scenario, it's hard to say. But we've had historic hybridization events. We had hybridization events uh, 100,000 plus years ago in Ireland, where brown bears or grizzly bears in Ireland hybridized with polar bears. We had it off the panhandle of Alaska in what's called uh, the ABC Islands. Uh, polar bears during a cold period came south, and as the climate warmed, the grizzly bears came back from the coast and they hybridized there. So the, the grizzly bears that lived there still have some polar bear genes in them. It's a normal process. We won't be able to affect change. Um, these things are happening far away from where most people live. But it's, it's quite interesting because I, I've worked in a lot of Inuit communities in the Canadian Arctic, and uh, especially out on the islands where they don't have a long history of, of grizzly bears being around, they really do not like them. Um, they don't trust them. They tend to be much more destructive of their cabins, uh, their trap lines, uh, their food caches. So whenever they see a grizzly bear, they're more than happy uh, to put a bullet hole in it and skin it and take it home. Um, so there's sort of a natural element of humans uh, involved in this. And, and it's also interesting to know most of the hybrids that we know about we know about because they were uh, shot by local people living a subsistence lifestyle. So Inuit out on the land, see a bear, shoot it. Oh, this is a hybrid. That's kind of cool. And then that's how we find out about it. Uh, one other thing uh, I, I want to briefly mention is the impact of toxic chemicals on polar bears. Again, um, playing this, you know, little silly role is like, oh, how come toxic chemicals? It's, uh, you know, ice and snow. There's nobody there. So can you just uh, lay it out uh, to us like that impact and how how bad is that situation for polar bears? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I look back on my career 40 years. I could have studied anything. I'm, I'm a natural historian by, by sort of bent. I could have studied dragonflies or damselflies or butterflies or almost anything. Fish I would have been fascinated with too. But I got into studying polar bears and I got into it to study their natural history. And one of the things that's been sort of a hallmark of my career is that I've ended up studying the unnatural history of polar bears. And when I mean unnatural, it's uh, I moved to Norway because there was a population of polar bears that hadn't been hunted uh, since 1973 when the Norwegians shut their harvest. So I wanted to go study a natural population of polar bears. And so I moved there with my family in 1996 and was there for seven years studying. The problem was right after I moved there, we found out that the polar bears in the Norwegian Arctic around Svalbard were some of the most polluted bears in the world incredibly high levels of pollution. So all of a sudden, my whole research trajectory switched from a natural ecology to understanding the effects of pollutants on polar bears. And we did a lot of studies on them. And these bears were really highly polluted. Uh, these are industrial chemicals, uh, uh, agricultural compounds, things that you don't really think about anymore, like DDT still shows up in polar bears. And these are transported to the Arctic from warmer uh, environments. It gets up into the atmosphere and then basically uh, drops out onto the sea ice and then ends up into the food chain. It gets biomagnified. So a lot of these industrial chemicals, um, pesticides, herbicides, they're 
what we call lipophilic, which means they're fat-loving. They bond onto fat molecules. So that's how they get into the base of the food chain. Uh, they get absorbed in small invertebrates, then they go into the fish, then they go into the seals. And at each stage, the concentration is magnified. Uh, it's a process called biomagnification. So higher up the food web, the higher the pollution levels. Then you introduce a polar bear, which has this high-fat diet, feeding on the blubber of seals, and now they're taking in massive amounts of pollution. And that's the, the summation of it. Uh, very high levels. And, and it gets really complicated. But we know that these pollutants affect their immune system. We know it affects their growth patterns, bone density. Um, it affects their hormone regulation. What does it do to individuals? We're not really sure. But the concerns we have, and at that time, uh, that if you've got a weakened immune system, we've got climate change going on, the potential for new diseases and parasites, um, is it a risk? And there's been some concerns that there's interaction between climate change and pollutants and disease exposure that makes uh, polar bears much more vulnerable. Um, and, and to put it into perspective, um, if polar bears, the level of pollutants that polar bears have in them, um, if they were another species like mink, like the small mustelid animal, the weasel-like mink, um, they would not reproduce. They would stop reproducing. And, and mink actually would die at the levels of pollutants that polar bears have. So there's something about polar bears that's pretty good about dealing with um, pollutants, uh, but they're not immune to the effects. And when I say pollutants, I mean, people think, oh, yeah, okay, well, you know, maybe some DDT and things like PCBs, which are polychlorinated biphenyls, which are industrial chemicals. They were built not to break down, which is exactly what happens. But when you say PCBs, there's actually 209 different types of them. Depends on how many chlorine atoms are on them. 209 types, all vary in toxicity. Um, but then it gets really weird because the bears can break some of these down uh, using enzymes in the body. And now they make new chemicals, but they're also even more toxic. They're now no longer lipophilic. They're actually water-soluble, but that means they're actually moving through the blood system and more active on things like hormone levels. And so some of these look a lot like hormones. So the PCB molecules look a lot to the body, uh, just like thyroid hormones. So you can see the potential for interference. And it gets really complicated, but we have concerns. But on the plus side, we have some international conventions that limited the use of PCBs internationally. They're still out there in some places, lots of it in dumps still leaking into the environment. Um, but PCB levels are dropping in polar bears. Uh, but at the same time, we just did some studies. I, I worked with some analytical chemists, and we found several hundred new types of pollutants that we're pretty sure are coming from humans because they're not natural wild products. Uh, but we don't even know what they are. Uh, yet in order to identify a chemical in the bear, you have to have something to compare it to. Um, but these are just weird byproducts of industrialization, probably coming out of countries that have poor environmental regulations. Um, we don't even know what they are, but several hundred. So a polluted polar bear, easily many, many hundreds of toxic chemicals in them.
and really high levels of mercury, which is coming from industrialization. So it's not just these chemicals, but it's also the elements like, uh, like mercury that are very high and increasing. So there's good news, bad news. Um, polar bears probably will not go extinct. No way. Not from toxic chemicals. They're pretty good at dealing with it. Um, is it a concern? Yes. How does it rank? It's probably number two behind climate change. Um, but it would be the interactions with emerging diseases because the Arctic is changing. New species are coming in all the time and those new species bring new diseases. So, um, you know, it's, we've just come out of COVID and we know what diseases can do to populations. And um, it, it's the same with wildlife. And you talk to wildlife disease experts and they're very concerned about, you know, new diseases showing up. I mean, where I live right now, we're being told to start to be concerned about West Nile, which has never been a concern where I live. Here in Ireland, the the, the and in the UK, the bird, the seabird population is getting decimated by the bird flu. Um, yeah, yeah, and so there, that's the concern. And that's uh, as a wildlife biologist, um, as a Canadian working for the Norwegian government as the polar bear scientist, which which the media referred to as being the cream job, the best job in the country to be a polar bear scientist in Norway. And it was a good job. Uh, I really enjoyed working over there. But my big concern was here's this Canadian who's responsible for polar bears and understanding them. Uh, and I was really concerned of, of what would happen if we had a massive die-off of polar bears. And, you know, that sounds kind of fantastical, but I moved over there just on the heels of a massive die-off of seals all throughout Europe, um, which was tied to some other diseases. So, you know, distempers. And and so, you know, you, you don't really know what's going to happen. And, you know, a long time ago, a, a professor of mine said, it, you, you're, it's a fool's game to predict evolution. Um, and I, I agree with that. I think we can't predict, you know, so things like hybrids, what does that mean? How will the bears evolve? That's hard to say. But it's also when you're talking climate change, we're not talking evolution anymore. We're talking sort of much more like news events and current events like this is happening over years and decades. Um, and species like polar bears with long generation times and slow reproductive rates are, are quite sensitive to those sorts of random events like disease or outbreaks. And so we're, we're very concerned. Last thing about uh, threats or maybe non-threats to polar bears, uh, I want to ask you, Andrew, you mentioned at the top of the show that uh, polar bears were or maybe are hunted uh, throughout their range to this point. Um, can you briefly lay it out, uh, maybe history, but I'm more interested in current hunting practices. I know that they, uh, there's an Inuit hunting that is still allowed for polar bears and those, uh, I don't know, tags or permits can be sold to non-Inuit hunt hunters. So effectively we have a um, guiding kind of uh, experience here. I am wondering, is, is that of concerns? What are the numbers? Uh, is that, you know, non-issue at all compared to everything else that's going on? What's the situation here? Yeah, so really briefly, in the 50s and 60s, polar bears were hunted commercially uh, and there were no regulations on their take. Um, in 1973, the five Arctic nations signed an agreement to either stop hunting, which Norway did, um, or to 
basically regulate the hunting. And that's the situation that occurs pretty much in Canada, Alaska, and Greenland. Norway stopped their hunting because they deemed that they didn't have a local population that had a tradition of hunting, even though they had been killing bears. Um, interestingly, Russia, or the USSR at the time, um, was so concerned about their populations from excess hunting, they actually stopped shooting them in 1956. Uh, so in Canada... Alaska uh, and Greenland, we still have hunting. It's mainly done by Inuit uh, in those areas, the local people in a subsistence manner. Um, there is a little bit of sport hunting. Inuit can guide hunters from some parts of the world to go shoot a bear. Um, most of the, if, it, if it's an American hunter, they're not allowed to anymore, uh, but people come from other parts of the world to hunt them and they can take their the, the skin of the bear home. Um, Polar bear hunting is culturally important. It's economically important. The hides can be sold and traded on the international market under what's called CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. It's not a threat. It's We have some concerns in some populations that the harvest is too high, but that's a management issue, and, and that's something that we can adjust. Uh, a quota is set based on the abundance estimate of that area. And if that abundance estimate is down, then the quotas are dropped uh, to come into balance with what's a sustainable harvest. Um, I don't, I don't stay up at night worrying about hunting and polar bears. That's the one of the few things that humans can control easily and effectively, and we have a good history of that. Where we have had overharvest in the Canadian Arctic, uh, moratorium on hunting were put in, or severe restrictions on quotas, and the populations recovered. Longer term, it gets more challenging under climate change, but uh, I've always been a supporter of, of uh, you know, Aboriginal people, First Nations, um, having that right to live a traditional lifestyle if they so wish. And so I've always supported the hunting side of that uh, as long as it's done sustainably. And for the most part, it is. Excellent. Good to hear. Why American hunters cannot be guided by, by Inuit hunters? Oh, that was the... 2008 decision to list them as a threatened species. And that was a listing by the U.S. government um, under the ESA. That was a blanket applied to the whole range of polar bears. Their best estimate was that uh, two-thirds of the world's population would disappear roughly by mid-century. So in essence, that meant that it had knock-on effects. They have what's called the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Uh, another law and once that threatened status kicked in, it shut down the importation of uh, hides into uh, polar bear hides into the United States. So the Americans are very sensitive. You can't move any marine mammal products into, into the country. It's even tough for us trying to do cooperative research um, with the Americans because it's such an onerous process to send a few polar bear hairs or genetic material down to the States for analysis. Okay, so it's not like they cannot hunt and cannot be guided. They just cannot bring back the, the skull and the hide. They technically can still go and shoot the bear. No, technically they're not allowed to. They're still governed by their own laws. Uh, so technically they're not allowed to do that. So yeah, so it's it's kind of, yeah, the American laws have long arms. Yeah, it's a gray area, I guess. Okay, cool. Let's, let's not labor on that point any longer. Uh, Andrew, uh, to wrap this up, um, 
what if you look at the crystal ball which you probably don't have but if you had it what you would expect to see so in other words how do you see future of polar bears playing out over the next you know 50 100 years maybe even longer yeah i think the best analyses that we have collectively from across the arctic is that we will lose many populations out of those 19 i i can see certainly seven or so that will probably depart in the coming decades, um, possibly during my lifespan, which I don't know how long I'm going to live. So that's always a tough one. But certainly within the coming decades, um, we're going to see some disappear. We've already got some of them that are definitely teetering on the edge. We can see, look at things like the age structure. The bears are getting older. We're not getting the recruitment. That's kind of like what we'd almost call like a zombie population that they can just sort of walk off the edge and they all disappear because there's not enough new bears coming in. Uh, some areas will do well out for another 40, 50, 100 years. So they'll, they'll still be doing well. Uh, some areas might actually see some slight improvement in the habitat because the ice will be a little bit better for the bears. Uh, but that's a small area and not going to compensate for the massive loss. I think we'll lose bears from uh, north coast of Alaska several Canadian populations in Hudson Bay. It's all those fringe areas. The Norwegian population I studied in the Barents Sea and around Svalbard, that one is, we're losing about 30 days of ice cover per decade. That means that every decade that passes, a bear has to be 30 kilograms fatter by the time the ice melts in order to survive that ice-free period. Well, this has been going on for several decades now. At some point, the numbers just don't work. And I think Svalbard might be the first area where we really say, okay, yeah, where did all the bears go? Um, but I think it's it, it really depends on what humans do. I mean, we're a clever species. We can deal with these things. I mean, the changes that are happening in terms of energy, the way we think about climate change. Um, and I think the sense of urgency comes when people's homes are being flooded We've got massive forest fires in North America um, that are related to the drier conditions. It could be El Nino to some extent, but you know, we can make changes, and I and I'm confident that we will. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, but you know, I have children. I hope that the that you know future generations uh, don't blame us too much for not acting soon enough. Uh, I think that's going to be the big question, but. I'm willing to do my bit as best I can to to try to implement some changes in my life. But I really think that we need the big scale, the industry, the government to to lead us towards the right place and make the right decisions as uh, as I think behooves us. Because by the time polar bears are really in trouble as a species, um, this is simply going to be, climate change is going to be just a humanitarian issue. We're going to be dealing with flooded cities, uh, mass migration, droughts that, you know, are, are going to be a focus of our energy and our efforts. Um, so we have a window of time to act. And, and I'm cautiously optimistic. We are making changes. It is happening. Um, you know, so I'm not in despair at all. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but we're going to have to make some smart decisions as a species going forward. Wow. That is, that is very, very, um, good and optimistic and unexpected to be honest coming from you uh but yeah so what i'm taking is that uh, by the time polar bears will be in trouble uh, due to the climate 
humans will be in such a deep trouble that even politicians couldn't could not ignore this any longer i think that's where we're heading you know and and plus uh, i mean i would hate to think that 40 years of my life has been spent to just sort of be a footnote in a history book about a species that disappeared that would just be too sad just too sad you know there was this oh. guy Duroche who studied 40 years and and thought they'd be okay but nope they weren't and that just is too sad to ponder and i don't like that yeah, let's hope it's not going to happen andrew thank you so much for this uh, conversation it was it was really immensely interesting and i sure i'm sure that our listeners and viewers learn a lot at least as much as i did thank you so much it's been my pleasure thank you thank you for listening if you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 